Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Acts 9, verses 1 to 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straits. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we're told in Your Word that the Word of the Cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Father, will You send Your Holy Spirit this morning to help us to see just how powerful this Word of the Cross is. May we stand in awe of the good news of the Gospel. Increase our appreciation for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A number of years ago now, when I was in seminary, uh, during the summer I was a part of a painting crew, and one of the gentlemen on the painting crew was a college student at Purdue University. And he mentioned to me one day that that evening he was going to share his testimony with the youth group. In other words, he was going to tell the story about how he became a Christian. And he kind of bemoaned the fact that he, quote-unquote, didn't have a radical conversion experience. And I rebuked him immediately. And I said, yes, you do. 
every single conversion to Jesus Christ is radical. Think of how the Bible describes our salvation. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We couldn't do anything. And God raised us from the dead. That describes every Christian. The Bible also says that at one time, the God of this age blinded the minds of unbelievers so that we couldn't even see the Gospel. The Gospel could be staring us right in the face and we would say, Gospel? What Gospel? I don't see any Gospel. But God opened our blind eyes so that we could see the Gospel. We're also told that the Lord transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son that He loves. So just looking at these descriptions that describe conversion, we see that every single conversion that has ever taken place in the history of the church is radical. Uh, Years ago, going back a little further now, when I was a college student, I remember listening to Dr. Stoll and he was talking in one message about how he was up to his neck in sin. That he was just a wretch And he was drowning in his sin. And he would have perished except that God had basically reached down from heaven as it were, pulled him out of the muck and mire of his sin, put him on solid ground and saved him. And when he said that, I remember thinking, you know what? I remember him speaking in an earlier message. And he mentioned that he came to Christ when he was four years old. And I thought, how much muck and mire of sin can there be when you're four years old? I was 20 when I came to Christ. I had 16 more years in musk and mire of sin. But you know what? He was right. Even though he was only four years old, he was drowning in the musk and mire of his sin. And his conversion at the age of four was radical. Again, I say every single conversion really is radical. So while we might be tempted to say, My conversion was no Damascus Road experience. From one point of view, it wasn't. From another perspective, it was. So this morning, as we look at the most famous conversion in all church history, we want to ask this question. uh, What elements of Saul's conversion were atypical and what were typical? Put simply, what were unique to Saul, like his being blinded by light? Uh, But what were common for every Christian? Like confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and realizing that God had indeed raised Him from the dead. As we look at our passage, um, we have already been introduced to Saul with three glimpses that Luke has provided for us. The first came in Acts 7, 58. Uh, uh, Stephen was being stoned to death. And we're told... And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's the first mention of Saul in the book of Acts. And then in 8.1 we read, And Saul approved of his execution. And then in verse 3 we read, But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women, committing them to prison. And then picking up the story in verse 9-1, we read, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, 
went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, as Christians were called then, men or women, he might bring them browned to Jerusalem. So we're told that Paul is breathing out threats and murder. And we've already seen that murder here is to be taken very literally. And we should also consider this phrase, breathing out threats. It's a very graphic word. It actually describes what an animal does. Like a wild beast snorting before it devours its prey. Uh, We can think of a bull in the ring and before it charges the matador, it snorts. And then it comes charging. That's the description of Paul here. Uh, He is like a wild beast breathing out threats and murder against the church. Luke is trying to help us to see just how intense and ferocious Paul was in his hatred of Jesus Christ and his hatred of Christians. And by the way, they all always go together. Jesus Christ and Christians. Uh, We also see the intensity of Paul's hatred uh, for Christ and His church by the fact that he's going to Damascus. Uh, Damascus was 150 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, Back in the first century, that was about a week's travel time. So, Saul, uh, also known as Paul, I may forget to call him Saul, Saul, Paul, same person, known as Paul the Apostle after his conversion. But Saul is not content to persecute Christians in Jerusalem. There's been a persecution. Christians have been scattered. And what's Saul going to do? He's going to go after them. Even if he has to travel a week. Even if he has to travel 150 miles to hunt them down. Because he hates them. And he hates them so much that he goes to the high priest so that he can get extradition papers, as it were can arrest them, bring them back to Jerusalem, throw them in prison, maybe judge them more, maybe even have them also executed like Stephen was executed. So he is a man on a mission and he is ferocious in what he is doing against the church of Jesus Christ. But everything changed in an instant shortly before he arrived in Damascus. Verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now, we have one account of his conversion experience here that Luke tells. Uh, Later, Paul will describe his own conversion experience in chapter 22 and then again in chapter 26. Now, putting all these accounts together, We know that it was about noon, high noon. The sun is shining brighter than at any time during the day. And we're also told that the light that shone around Paul and his entourage, the men that were traveling with him, was brighter than the noonday sun. Now, what was this light? This light was none other than the glory of Jesus Christ. And perhaps it was even accompanied by a thunderbolt. But regardless, we're told in verse 4, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice. So this light appears, the glory of Jesus Christ, 
it knocks him to the ground. And we know from the other passages that it not only knocks him to the ground, but it knocks all the men to the ground. So they are all overwhelmed by the glory of Jesus Christ that suddenly appears and is shining all around Paul and the men. And then Saul hears a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul. R.C. Sproul points out that whenever a name is repeated, it's a sign of intimacy. Remember when Martha was complaining, Lord, I have to do all this work to get the dinner ready. Any of you ladies ever done that? I'm sure that's never happened in this church. but <laughs> I know that in other places, women will complain about that. Martha's complaining that Mary isn't helping and Jesus says, Martha, Martha. A sign of tenderness. When the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush, He says, Moses, Moses. Uh, a sign of intimacy. And here we have Saul, Saul. Not only does Jesus know Saul's name, but he's speaking to him in a very intimate way. And then he says, why are you persecuting Christians? Nope. Why are you persecuting my people? Nope. What does he say? Why are you persecuting? Tell me. 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 That's very important. Why are you persecuting me? You know why Jesus says that? Because he is one with his people. Husband, wife are one. Jesus, His bride, the church are one. To persecute Christians is to persecute Jesus Christ Himself. He really does feel our pain. Remember many years ago when Bill Clinton said that? I feel your pain. Great thing for politicians to say. Or identify with the people. I feel your pain. I know what you're going through. And we often think, oh, sure you do. <laughs> Jesus Christ really does feel our pain because He is one with us. Theologians call this the mystical union of Jesus with His people. It's mystical because we really don't understand it, but it really is true. We are one with Christ. So Jesus is being persecuted. And He said, Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? He doesn't know who it is yet. Now, notice also that he calls him Lord. Uh, Jesus has appeared to him. We know that from 1 Corinthians 15, that he knows uh, the Lord has appeared to him, but he doesn't yet know who the Lord is. But he knows the sovereign God is appearing to me. Who is this Lord? And then the answer comes. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And let's, let's pause for a moment here and just think of the shock and horror <laughs> that ran through Paul's mind at that instant. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I think he was absolutely devastated. And he realized in an instant, that fast, that everything he was doing and was about to do was completely wrong. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. In an instant, he knew Jesus really has risen from the dead. 
He really is reigning at the right hand and He really is God in the flesh. And we'll come back and describe that a little more later. So He's absolutely stunned. And then in verse 6, Jesus goes on and says, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Jesus has something for Saul to do. But in the meantime, he has to wait. Uh, We're told about the men. They were traveling with him. They stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. Uh, He really was blinded by the lights. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Uh, No doubt, Saul is fasting and praying. (laughs) Uh, His life has been transformed in an instant and it has been shocking. Uh, I will kid with people, but I I mean this half seriously. Um, I think God is really gracious to us when He brings us to Himself. Because usually what He does, I won't say usually, always what He does, is He doesn't show us who we are completely in an instant. Think if God were to open our eyes in an instant and show us just how sinful we are. Can you imagine that? I I don't think we, we could survive the shock of looking at who we are, who we really are. I, I think it would be too much for us to take in. God is gracious. He slowly opens our eyes. I can still remember when I became a Christian, praying that God would forgive me and thinking there is some sin in my life I don't know if God can forgive because it is so great. It is so heinous. I really, at first, I didn't know if I could be forgiven for my sin because it was so great. And I look back and I think, oh, it was much greater than I thought. But but God slowly opens our eyes. But Saul, I don't know, I think he got a bigger glimpse of who he really was than most of us get. And, and he is devastated. And he is spending time in prayer. And we know that from verse 11 because that's what Jesus tells Ananias. You will find Saul who was praying. And of course, this is a sign of genuine conversion. Continuing on in 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. That's still there to this day. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So the Lord is telling Ananias that he's going to go to Saul. And Saul has already been prepared because he's had a vision. And he knows that a man named Ananias is coming. How does Ananias respond? But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. What is Ananias doing here? Ananias is doing what many of us do when we're called to do something uncomfortable. Uh, we're, we fill the Lord in on the details that he overlooked. <laughs> uh, in essence, Ananias is saying, uh, maybe you haven't heard. 
But I, I've heard from many how He persecutes your people. And even now, He's here with papers from the chief priests with authority to persecute your people. Did you know that, Jesus? Did you hear about that? Um, it, it really is foolish and we laugh and think of how foolish we are. And, and think of our prayer times. I know I've done this. I've caught myself uh, telling God what's going on in a situation as though He doesn't know. But God is gracious. And notice how the Lord is so gracious to Ananias. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. I love that. The first time Saul was ever called by another Christian, brother. Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And then we'll see in the coming weeks that he begins his ministry as an apostle. Now, looking this, for this passage, uh, what can we glean about our salvation? As I said earlier, of course, some things that happened to Saul are very unique. Uh, he saw the glory of Jesus Christ visibly. It knocked him to the ground. He heard the audible voice of Jesus Christ. He was blinded by the light. And then he regained his sight and Ananias laid hands on him so that he would receive the Holy Spirit. So some things that happened to Saul were very unique and will not be repeated. But many things that happened to Saul are very common. And to discern between the common and the uncommon, what we have to do is compare Scripture with Scripture. And as we look at the New Testament as a whole, I think we can be fairly accurate in discerning what is common for all conversion experiences. And I want to look at just three elements. First of all, when it comes to the conversion of anybody, we should note that Jesus Christ is the initiator. Jesus Christ is the initiator. Saul was not a quote-unquote seeker. <laughs> Would anybody read this passage and describe Saul as a seeker of Jesus Christ? Hardly. And we are told in Romans 3.11... That how many people seek God? No. no one seeks God. Often we think we come to Christ and we really were seeking God. But then perhaps we reflect and we look back and we think, no, actually I, I wasn't seeking God. And I, I can still remember when I, the first time I sensed God speaking to me. And no, it wasn't audibly. And no, I didn't see any bright light. But I really did sense God was speaking to me. Um, I was not seeking God. Um, I was not seeking spiritual truth. 
Um, I was just living my life. Um, I was looking for a good time on the weekend. If that, anything I was a seeker after, it was a good time. Uh, but I was uh, sidetracked when I heard from God saying, what are you doing with your life? And as I look back, I saw God coming after me. And maybe if you would look back at your conversion experience, maybe you would realize, you know what? He was really coming after me. I wasn't seeking Him. He was seeking me. And what did, what did the Lord say to Ananias in 15 about Saul? He is a chosen instrument of mine. Chosen instrument. Well, who did the choosing? Jesus did the choosing. In John 15:16, uh, Jesus told the twelve disciples, uh, "You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to bear, to bear much fruit." In Ephesians 1:4, Paul writes that he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And then in Galatians chapter 1, Paul describes his conversion experience and he says in Galatians 1, 15 and 16, but when he who had sent me, or excuse me, when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult anyone. So Paul looks back and he says, He chose me. He set me apart before I was ever born. And I just want to say, beloved, I don't know how it could be any clearer in the Bible. I I don't know how many times God has to say, You didn't choose me. I chose you. And I chose you before the creation of the world. I chose you before you were born. It has nothing to do with you. God says it again and again and again. And we should just recognize, like Spurgeon did, that I know God chose me before I was born because He had no reason to choose me after I was born. Because we were just wretched sinners. Look at Saul. Was there any reason in, in Saul that would cause Jesus to say, yeah, I need him. He's, he's a good guy. Would love to have him on my team. No. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Him. And we should just stand in awe that He chose us for reasons known only to Himself. He chose us. I mentioned uh, to the worship team this morning that sometimes God uses songs to minister to people. And I remember as, as a new Christian, um, I was asking for some reason, just going through a hard time, what, what is the Christian life all about? And I can remember going to church, and this was over 20 years ago, but I can remember going to church and we sang this song and God spoke to me and said, that's it. And it was a simple song and it was boundless love, unending joy. This is my life. It's what I know. And I can't believe that He selected me. Jesus, my Lord, it's you I owe. God said, that's it. And I thought, that's it. Boundless love, unending. He selected me. I owe him my life. 
and great biblical doctrine in that simple praise chorus that ministered to be. Now, I think we can take this a step further. Um, not only is Jesus the initiator of our salvation, but He initiates our salvation not only when we were not seeking Him, but we were, in fact, resisting Him. So I want to state it even stronger. Not only were we not seeking Him, we were resisting Him, we were running from Him, we were stiff-arming Him because we just wanted to do our own thing. But He came against us. Now, if some of you have the King James Version or the New King James Version, uh, in verse 5, you have a statement that I don't have in the ESV. And that is Jesus saying, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, whether or not that statement is found here, we do know that it's a part of His conversion experience because we see it later in chapter 26 when Paul describes his conversion experience. Now, does anybody tend or under know what it means to kick against the goads? Anybody know what a goad is? Does anybody know what it means to kick? I think that you know, right? We know what a kick is, right? Uh, here's what it means. It's something meaningless to us, but in the first century, it's very common. In the first century, uh, oxen would be yoked together and they would pull like a produce cart, for example. And if the driver wanted the oxen to pull this cart, he would get out his whip and he would just gently hit the oxen so they would move forward. But sometimes oxen are stubborn like mules and they wouldn't budge. Sometimes they would get angry and they would kick the cart behind them. Now, that's not a good thing. You don't, you don't want to knock that produce cart over. So what the drivers would do or the owners would put goads, which are basically spikes on the ends of the cart. So the oxen, when he would kick back, he would kick the goad. He would kick the spike and it would hurt. But they were real, really stubborn. They might kick it again. But they would learn very quickly that it's hard to kick against the goads. You better just listen and obey and go when you're whipped. So what is Jesus saying to Saul? It's hard to kick against the goads. He's saying it's hard for you to resist the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's hard for you to resist the truth. What were some of the goads that had taken place in Saul's life? Here is one possibility. And again, I just suggest it as a possibility. I'm not going to be dogmatic about this. But it is highly probable, if you want to look at it statistically speaking, it is highly probable that Saul saw Jesus during his earthly ministry. They were about the same age. Uh, Saul was a devout Jew, so we know that he would have gone up to Jerusalem during the annual feast. He would have celebrated the feast in Jerusalem with countless thousands of other believers who came, as we've talked about in the past, and he would have celebrated those feasts. And we know that Jesus was at those feasts. And we also know that word about Jesus spread like wildfire. Everybody was talking about the Messiah. Everybody was crowding around Jesus. So even if Saul never saw Jesus, and again, it is possible, because if he had heard about Jesus, would he not have gone and saw Him for himself? 
that's a possibility. I would have, just using a little common sense here, I would have gone. So that is a possibility. But even if he didn't, he would have heard the truth about this would-be Messiah. But even if that didn't happen, we know that he was there when Stephen was being stoned. Most likely part of the court that saw the angelic face of Stephen. He heard the eloquent sermon of Stephen that he could not refute. And then he saw the Christ-like manner in which Stephen died. Calmly, boldly saying that he sees Jesus standing at the right hand, that he sees the glory of God. And he heard Stephen praying for the Lord to accept His Spirit. And he heard Stephen even asking God to forgive those who were stoning him. Saul never forgot that. And we've mentioned that before. He mentions it later. I was there giving my approval when Stephen was stoned. He never forgot that. What a powerful testimony. I often think of the witnesses who who would watch uh, Christians being martyred and they were burned at the stake and they died, as we said last week, often praying and singing. And I can't help but wonder, how would people listen, listening to that sing, how would they respond? Because that is so powerful. Saul witnessed that with Stephen. And deep down, he must have been asking, how could he possibly die like that? Did he really believe what he said? Was it really true? But he didn't want to face up to it. But what that tells us is although he was accosted by Jesus Christ on the road of Damascus, the Holy Spirit had already previously been working in his life. But he had been resisting. And often this is what God does in our lives. I think most of us can look back and think God was working in our lives and often we were resisting because we didn't want to become Christians. We wanted to be left alone. (laughs) When C.S. Lewis described his conversion, he said he wanted to be left alone. Uh, In C.S. Lewis's book, Surprised by Joy, he talks about his conversion experience. And let me just read part of it. It's it's absolutely fascinating. He says, My adversary, and the adversary is with a capital A here if he's referring to God. He says, My adversary waved the point. He would not argue about it. He only said, I am the Lord. I am that I am. I am. He goes on and he says, People who are naturally religious find difficulty in understanding the horror of such a revelation. Amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. To me, as I then was, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. (laughs) Remember, I had always wanted above all things not to be interfered with. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of Him whom I so earnestly desired 
not to meet. Isn't that fascinating? And some of you might be familiar with the poem, The Hound of Heaven. I can't help but think about that here because he feels the footsteps of God coming. He doesn't want to meet God. But the hound of heaven is coming after him anyways. He goes and he says, That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term, talking about the school year of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant converts in all England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son, at least, walks home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that Lord which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction looking for a chance to escape. That's something C.S. Lewis. I didn't want to become a Christian. I was trying to run from him. But he came after me. And he dragged me in. But of course, even though he drags us in at first or knocks us off our high horse, once we have seen his glory, then we joyfully walk in obedience. But C.S. Lewis was just being honest. Simply put, he was saying, I didn't want to be a Christian. But God had other plans and God hunted him down. And I wonder if any in this room are being hunted down by God. I wonder if you can sense the footsteps. I wonder if there are those times when you're alone that you sense maybe it's true. Be open to what God would have. Nobody is beyond the reach of God. Nobody. I've heard some people say, oh, I'm, I'm too great of a sinner. Another great lesson we get from Saul the persecutor here is no one's beyond the reach of God. I don't know if it gets any worse than this. And Saul really meant it when he said, I am the chief of sinners because I persecuted the church. I persecuted Jesus Christ. It doesn't get any worse than that. I persecuted God Himself. And yet, He was saved. So your dad, your mother, your brother, your sister, your aunt, your uncle, your neighbor, your co-worker is not safe from the hound of heaven who can grab a hold of anybody. And we should also notice that when Jesus Christ initiates salvation. He initiates salvation for a purpose. What do we see in verse 6? But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Jesus has something for Saul of Tarsus to do. He just has to wait for a moment. And I remember when I was praying about colleges years ago, um, I knew God wanted me to go to, to Moody. I'm not sure what, but I also knew that, well, I'll go to Moody and I'll study. And when the time is right, he'll show me what the next step is. This is where Saul is. He's going into Damascus. He has to wait there. But Jesus does have something for him to do. He just has to wait and see what it is. 
And if you are a Christian, God has something for you to do. He has a purpose for your life. He has a ministry for you. So one of the reasons why He saved you, why He has filled you with His Holy Spirit, why He has given you a spiritual gift or spiritual gifts so that you could serve Him. So that you could be involved in ministry. He has something for all of us to do. Verse 15, the Lord told Ananias, He is a chosen instrument of Mine to carry My name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now, maybe we're not going to appear before kings. Maybe we're just going to appear before our common neighbors or simple co-workers. But we too are a chosen instrument. And we need to serve. And we need to be open to what God has for us. And I want to challenge you to be open to the ministry that God has for you. One of the desperate needs in the church is for more laborers. Jesus told His disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into His field. That's one of my perpetual prayers. That He would send forth more laborers. We need more workers. So I want to challenge you just to be open to what God would have for you. Just to be open. Just to be an Ananias and to say, here I am, Lord, what do you want me to do? Here I am. There's so much work that needs to be done. Someone said that church is often like a football game. You watch a football game and you have 22 men in desperate need of rest with 40,000 watching fans in the stands in desperate need of exercise. I think that is a good picture of the church. You, you have so few people doing the work of ministry and they're, they're tired and you have so many people watching and they need to get into the game. I want to just challenge all of you to get into the game. And I really am confident. If you would just be open, God will show you. He really will. God will show you the opportunities will come. I just ask you to not be afraid. I really mean that. Many things hold people back. Fear is, is, is one of them. Don't, don't be afraid. It's been said the dynamic of the Christian life begins with obedience. If you're bored by Christianity, then you're not obedient. But it's scary. It's scary. It's, it's not easy. Uh, John Piper tells the story about how uh, afraid he was to speak in front of people. And finally, he was challenged to give uh, an opening prayer to chapel. And he asked, well, how long does it have to be? And someone said, I don't know, two minutes. And he said, Okay. And he did it in spite of his tremendous fear of public speaking. And he said he made a pledge to the Lord that day and he pledged that he would never turn down an opportunity to speak for Jesus Christ because of fear. Don't let fear get in the way. God has a ministry for every single one of His people. So be open to what God would have. He's called us. We weren't seeking Him. In fact, we were running from Him. 
but He came and saved us in spite of ourselves. And He has a work for us to do. Let's be open to the work that He has for us. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the radical conversion of Saul of Tarsus who became the Apostle Paul. And Father, for those of us who know You, we thank You for our conversion that also is radical. Father, I pray that we would see how radical it is so that we could better appreciate Your love for us. Father, if there are any here this morning that don't know You, I pray that You would draw them to Yourself. That You would reach out to them. Open their eyes. Help them to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Help them to see that He really has risen from the dead. That He really is the Lord. And help them to see that they need to submit their lives to Him. Father, we pray that You would do that. You, who are the great seeker and saver of the lost. Amen.